You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde of Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Back together and coming up, full earnings coverage ahead. We break down results from the social giant Meta and sit down with the chief financial officer, Susan Lee. Plus, we speak to the CEO of startup Plaid, which now valued at more than $13 billion. His outlook on the fintech space and the future of digital banking. And you may love your Tesla, but do you love the man who's building them? We'll break down the results from our Bloomberg Big Take that tackles just that. But first... Let's go to Meta. Let's stick with it with Deborah Aho Williamson, Insider Intelligence Principal Analyst. And anything left unsaid on that call, Deborah? Anything that you really want to guide on with Meta? Because it looks as though, well, they're back, back to growth as the economy comes back and digital advertising too. Yeah, it's been an incredible quarter. Uh, all the news that I heard was very positive. Um, and it's pretty incredible considering that not too long ago, sometime in the middle of last year, uh, I had very significant concerns about the company. Uh, we saw revenue challenges. We saw issues uh, with uh, the metaverse uh, not taking off as fast as Mark Zuckerberg thought it was going to. Uh, that's still the case, by the way. But uh, the company, I think, has become leaner and meaner and has been able to really focus on what it needs to accomplish now to be relevant now. Um, I think, for example, the, the launch of Threads a couple weeks ago is a perfect example of the way that Meta has been able to just double down with a small team, smaller the team than it has it's had in the past, put out an app that got huge publicity, great attention for Meta, and uh, yeah. we'll see what happens with Threads when it, it actually rolls out a little bit further, but so, so far, the 
quarter really looked good. And as you pointed out, Ed, uh, Q3, if they meet that guidance, um, that 20% or above revenue growth would be an amazing accomplishment after the 2022 that, we, that they had, which was not a good year. Did we learn anything new about threads? I mean, Mark Zuckerberg, Susan Lee, very restrained about making money through that platform. Absolutely. So uh, Threads launched after the quarter ended, so there was no impact to Q2 uh, for Threads. Uh, but they did say, and this is a pretty typical pattern that Meta follows with any new feature that they launch, uh, including stories back in the day and reels more recently, uh, they want to build an audience first uh, before they start to monetize it. Uh, they did mention on the call that they think that uh, there is room for a text-based app uh, to reach a billion users. Uh, they did name check Twitter at one point, which is very rare for uh, meta executives to, to, to talk about other companies on the call. Oh, but they did mention Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, you know, I, I caught that and I, was, I thought, wow, that's, that's pretty interesting. But uh, they do think that there is room for a one billion user text-based communication app. And so if Threads can get there, that will add to uh, the Instagram and F Facebook and uh, WhatsApp as the other three of one billion plus apps in their roster. Deborah, they're a money-making machine, but people are now questioning whether people are remaining on the Threads app and as addicted. Can they really take on the competition, TikTok on the one front, when you look at X on the other, when you're seeing all of really a very competitive space who all want time and indeed advertisers to have confidence? Yeah, well, it is going to take time for Threads to find itself. Uh, one of the benefits of having the smaller, leaner team that I just talked about was that they were able to launch Threads very quickly and b bring it online, probably before it had some of the features that people were looking for. So the downside to that is didn't have the features that people were looking for. And so maybe some people decided, oh, this isn't for me right now. So the challenge is going to be to get people to come back and to continue to use it. Uh, but I do think Threads needs to be more than just a, a, a Twitter killer or something like that. Threads needs to find itself as a place for creators and people to communicate in the way that they want to communicate on Threads. It's not going to be enough to just try to completely mimic or, or replace Twitter. So that's going to be the, the, the the dividing line for me in terms of what makes a Threads an app to stand out. Uh, but uh, you mentioned TikTok. Uh, the other factor here is that TikTok is Meta's number one competition. It's not Twitter. Twitter hasn't been Meta's competition for quite a long time, as much as, as everybody likes to think about Twitter versus Threads right now. Yes. It's really Meta versus TikTok that is the battle. So 10 billion annual run rate for Reels. I think you guys at eMarketer have the, the inside intelligence, sorry, have the math on this. Uh, TikTok did like 9 billion last year worldwide. So did uh, yeah. you hear our, enough? Our, uh, very good. Our forecast was for actually just under 10 billion. So very okay. close. Yeah. So are they competitive? Is Reels a TikTok competitor in terms of its ability to not just get eyeballs, but make a bit more money? 
Giants absolutely become a very strong competitor. Uh, we heard on the call yesterday that three quarters of ad advertisers on Meta are using uh, Reels right now. Or excuse me, three quarters of Instagram advertisers are using Reels right now, and that just speaks to the ability of Meta to get advertisers who are already ingrained in its other properties to try something new. So that's one thing that I noticed. Another thing I think that is worth paying attention to is that more people are seeing Reels. Uh, Meta is using its AI to uh, to show co recommended content, and so people are seeing Reels in their feeds that are very attuned to their interests, and so they're more likely to watch them. Um, it is still true that uh, I think some Reels, or maybe many Reels, are uh, pulled from TikTok or very similar to TikTok, so it does have that as an issue. But overall, as a platform, I think Reels is doing very, very well right now. Deborah Ho Williamson, Insider Intelligence, always good to get that real-time perspective on earnings. Thank you so much for joining. We keep the conversation going. Coming up, we're joined by Zach Perret, Plaid CEO, to discuss why Fed now is causing a bit of a buzz in the fintech industry. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice, or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Well, the consumer's strong, clear from GDP today. Let's talk about how you and I make payments at the moment, because the space is really changing. We all want instant gratification, and FedNow is actually enabling more instant payments 24-7, thanks to the Federal Reserve. Now, fintech company Plaid, a financial services firm that really serves as the plumbing for more than, what, 8,000 at least today's most popular financial apps, has just announced integration with that FedNow via its transfer service. For more, let's bring in Zach Perret, 
Plaid CEO, who's here to talk about the whole ecosystem for us. Zach, how is Fed now going to change the game? How is payments and your place within the payments ecosystem going to change? Thank you so much for having me. Um, financial services is changing very rapidly, and payments specifically is changing very rapidly right now. We're going from a payment system that was really oriented around cards uh, for quite a long time to now adding new payment trails into the system, and that hasn't happened since ACH and cards really started to scale back in the 70s and 80s. Um, as we're starting to look at FedNow, this is going to be a brand new payment rail coming in, um, and we expect it to increase consumer choice, increase competition, increase optionality um, for people out there. So we're really excited uh, for where the potential of it is, uh, but it's very early. We've just launched FedNow with 35 banks, and um, hopefully it goes from 35 to many, many more soon, um, but it's still in the early stages. How much of a competitive threat is it to fintech in and of itself? So I actually think that FedNow is a large accelerant to FinTech. So when you think about the way that you get paid, perhaps, for payroll, um, when you think about the way that you send money to a friend, um, when you think about the way that you maybe transfer funds from your brokerage application back into your checking account, um, today it oftentimes takes three days. You're using the legacy ACH system, which is a wonderful system, has scaled incredibly far, um, but it's slow. Mm. Um, as you look at FedNow, FedNow is going to be an instant addition to that. So you could run, yes, a slow transaction on ACH still for quite a long time, um, or you could use FedNow to deposit those funds instantly or move them a lot faster than you would otherwise. Zach, good morning from San Francisco. Good afternoon to you in New York. There'll be viewers of Bloombay Technology here in America that say the instant transfer of funds 24-7, <laughs> 365 days a year, yes, that's what I want. But it sounds like the reality of this kind of nationwide rollout is still a way away. When do you see it as sort of a commonplace standard for transactions in this nation? That's a great question. Um, hopefully soon, but the reality is it will take years. Um, it won't be an instant thing. Um, it's going to take us maybe two, three, four years, perhaps even a little bit longer than that to get it to total mainstream. Um, but what we are going to start to see is that certain use cases are going to accelerate a lot faster. So for example, um, if you think about payroll, um, uh, getting payroll delivered more quickly is better for employers. They have less time with the funds floating out there. It's better for employees. Um, they're able to actually receive their funds faster. So I suspect that there are going to be certain sub-segments of the industry um, that are really focused on, on, on making it go quickly. Um, the big question in my mind is actually how fast banks are going to adopt it. Um, so yes. we've seen Fed now launch with 35 banks. It's a non-trivial but still fairly straightforward amount of work that a bank has to do to implement Fed now and get up and running on the system. Um, the big question in my mind is how fast are we going to go from 35 to 350 to 3,500 uh, financial institutions that are using Fed now and enabling all of those millions of consumers to actually use it on the back end. You announced a deeper partnership with Cross River this morning on uh, real-time payments and one of the things that you highlighted was their proprietary technology their own ability to do this what is it that they have that other banks lack that you think need to be more commonplace to make this a reality so uh, we very much appreciate the, the partnership with Cross River, and they're very much leaning into these newer real-time payment rails, um, which is great. And we have FedNow, which we're very excited, and, and obviously has launched recently. We are continuing to lead into. And we also have RTP, which is a, a protocol that's built by many of the large banks. Um, uh, so I think with a combination of these two, we're going to be able to get to a lot more consumers a lot more quickly. And of course, we work with a number of banking partners, but Cross River is leaning in uh, to help us get, get these products to market as quickly as we can. What's funny is when Ed started to describe what What's coming via Fed now? I thought of crypto. 365 days, all time, 24-7, ability to get access to money directly. Is 
that a competitive force? Do you see crypto still evolving in the same way if we suddenly do have more quick access to our money? You know, it's, it's an interesting point that you bring up because um, when we heard the promise of crypto or the promise of DeFi or, or, or many of these, these new protocols or tools, um, a lot of it was centered around this concept of um, enable consumers to have access to their money at all times, as, as, as you say. Um, in some sense, FedNow is completing that journey. Um, uh, you know, if this and when this gets to scale, um, uh, it will allow consumers to, yes, move money in, in, in the time that they want to, in the instant that they want to. Um, that's not to say, though, that crypto is dead um, in any sense. And in fact, um, many cryptocurrency companies are likely to use FedNow as a funding mechanism or a funding rail um, uh, to move money into, for example, a cryptocurrency exchange. So you still have to fund that account. Um, so the reality is I expect these two to interplay well. Um, I expect these two to, to, to end up living harmoniously together. Um, however, it is, it is funny to hear that, that message of 24-7, uh, 365 uh, coming from the Federal Reserve, which historically ran uh, you know, a uh, five-day-a-week, uh, you know, nine-to-five type of system. Talking about living harmoniously, you've been trying to live more harmoniously with banks, but it was, what, a year or so ago that Visa was trying to buy you, and now, basically, you're becoming more and more of a competitive threat. When can you usurp Visa? When do you think you will be a dominant force within payments? Um, you know, broadly, we think about um, Visa as uh, a very interesting corollary, a partner, um, and we, we, we know many people there personally, so, so I think of them as friends. Um, the way that we think about our business is slightly different. It's a different vector than, than Visa itself. We focus on enabling a consumer to connect their financial account to an application that they want to use um, to get real-time value from, from their data, um, and uh, yes, to enable bank links payments. That's not to say, though, that, that, that debit cards or credit cards or any of the existing payment rails are going to go away. We think about adding another option coming through FedNow as another choice for a consumer. It's another choice for a merchant. It's another choice for an application that might need to execute a funds transfer. Um, and as, as we enter this new world of increasing competition, increasing choice, increasing optionality for a consumer, um, we actually see the two living alongside each other for quite a long time. Zach, you mentioned competition. One domain where this is really playing out is in artificial intelligence, right? Taking a large language model, using the underlying technology to improve your service. Can you just talk a little bit of how you're investing in that space? What types of engineers you're onboarding to, to help you be competitive? That's a great question, um, and an area that we think quite a lot about. Um, the reality is um, uh, AI has uh, two major ways that we'll probably see it play out in financial services. The first is very simple and straightforward. So it's helping all businesses be more efficient. So that's making our support team more efficient. That's making the way that we write code more efficient. Um, that's generally implementing AI tools to improve employee efficiency. And it's no different in financial services versus any other tech-enabled industry. The second is thinking about fundamentally new products that can only exist with the help of AI. So one of the areas that at Plaid we've been investing a lot in is building better tools for credit analytics and credit scoring. If you think back to the way that credit has, is scored today or even the way that it was scored 10 years ago, those two aren't all that different. Um, we have a, a FICO score. Um, there's perhaps a bit more uh, data that's being added in. Um, at Plaid, we focus on building tooling to enable better data to go into your, into your loan package. So if you're applying for a loan, you're perhaps um, someone that lived internationally and is just moving back to the US. You don't have a lot of employment history in the US, but you do have fairly good income and fairly good assets. How can you get all that data into your loan package? Well, Plaid, Plaid builds a lot of that. 
The next phase that, that I'm eager to dive into is thinking about how can AI help inform those models, make better predictions about what a consumer is likely to be able to borrow, um, what they're likely going to be able to, 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 to pay back, um, and how that's going to work. Now, we have a long way to go in terms of working with the regulators to figure out how exactly we can and when we should implement AI models for, for lending importer lending decisions. Um, but I'm excited to go on that journey, and I think that there's a very big uh, opportunity for us all ahead. Zach, AI in the context of lending is a conversation we're keen to dive into mm -hmm. as well. We're just out of time for today. Thanks to Zach Perret, the Plaid CEO out there in New York. Time for Talking Tech. First up, China vying to boost investments in its technology sector. Central bank officials are asking lenders to help fund research and tech-related acquisitions in order to revive a private sector that's frankly been hit with regulatory curbs. Also, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo says that actions needed from the US and its allies in order to fight a surplus in semiconductors. Raimondo pointed the finger at China's aggressive subsidies and called for more export controls and domestic incentives in order to alleviate the glut. Plus, the Pentagon planning to issue a first-time contract to U.S. or Canadian companies for gallium. This comes after China curbed exports on gallium and germanium minerals, which are crucial to semiconductors and military radar systems. Caroline. Meanwhile, let's just talk Tesla for a minute, Ed, because five years it is now since Tesla's Model 3 electric car actually hit the market. And in an effort to kind of assess the mood of consumers, Bloomberg surveyed more than 7,000 verified owners about their experience. Five years on, look, we're doing it again. We're following up with those thousands of original responders. And there's one key theme, Ed, that's standing out. Owners may love their cars, but they've soured on the big boss behind Tesla. Of course, that's Elon Musk. It's today's big take. Joining us now for more is Bloomberg's Tom Randall. And Tom, I mean, perhaps we're not surprised, but is it in any way starting to put off people buying another car or investing further in the Tesla ecosystem? Well, that was definitely one of the questions that we wanted to kind of get at through this survey. And we are actually seeing some of that. Um, you know, I, my initial theory was that it wasn't flowing through because you see, you know, Tesla is still experiencing huge sales of all of its cars, uh, tons of demand. Um, but we really do see it was a very strong reaction um, that we received. And you can, you can feel it in the comments. Um, people feel kind of uh, betrayed in a way. Um, um, and, and we did start to tie it to their buying behavior. So people who are looking at a future vehicle right now in the, for the, in the next two years, we asked them what kind of cars that they were looking for. And the demand for Tesla is still incredibly strong uh, from those people. It's 87% uh, of the people were looking at a Tesla. Um, so that seems really high, but if you look at the people who are not looking at a Tesla, it's all because of Elon. He was the number one reason um, for them not looking at another Tesla. And uh, you, you never see that kind of correlation between a CEO and the products in the, in the product making decisions. And, and so what we saw was even among these people who uh, were turning away, like they still love their cars. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of their comments voiced that. Um, it was Tom, it was the, questions, the questions were verbatim the same posed this year is when you first started, how else have, have the responses shifted very quickly? 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I missed the first part of your question, but the uh, the, the shifting uh, responses um, since 2019, the number one uh, question, the number one shift was in Elon's sentiment. Um, there was nothing even kind of close to it. Uh, and in fact, out of 150 questions that we asked, uh, the questions about Twitter and Elon's uh, tweets, kind of after the acquisition, uh, were the worst scoring uh, among all of them. All right, Bloomberg's Tom Randall with the big take on Tesla. Check it out on Bloomberg.com. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything. Everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before, tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And Ed Ludlow out here in San Francisco. We now want to welcome our Bloomberg radio and TV audiences worldwide. We want to delve even deeper into Meta's earnings report. CEO Mark Zuckerberg saying that, quote, we continue to see strong engagement across our apps with the most exciting roadmap I've seen in a while. Our investments in AI will continue and we remain fully committed to the Metaverse vision as well. Let's dig in further with Meta Chief Financial Officer. Susan Lee joining us. And it's not just Mark finding things exciting. Investors, analysts upgrading, exciting economy for the world at large today, it feels, here in the United States. How excited, Susan, are your clients right now? How resilient is this digital ad spending? Well, first of all, thank you, Ed and Caroline, for having me. It's a it's a pleasure to be with you guys and with your viewers this morning. You know, you noted that we reported really strong Q2 results. We're really happy with um, all of our execution efforts across our core user and engagement metrics. Obviously, the reacceleration in our ad revenue, which we've been talking about. 
and you know, which we think is the as uh, the reflection both of an improvement in the macroeconomic landscape, which the digital ads market is so closely tied to, along with our own efforts continuing to invest in and execute on quarters and years of work in um, making sure that our ad systems are performing well, that we're delivering measurable results for our advertisers, and we really have seen those results uh, bear fruit. So that's something we're really excited about in Q2. We also talked about how our year of efficiency work is really setting us up for success going forward. I think it's put us into a place where we have a leaner cost structure, which will serve us well as we plan for the future. And it's also enabling us to move faster, to build more and ship more quickly new products and experiences in service of what um, of our customers. And so Mark talked about this yesterday on the call. Threads is a really good example of that. It's something that we built with a relatively smaller team on a tighter timeline, and I think is a good reflection of the year of efficiency paying off for us. Finally, the last theme I'd highlight from our earnings call is around 2024. We have, I think, a lot of compelling opportunities to invest in. We talked about our AI investments and how that will flow through into infrastructure costs. We talked about hiring top-tier technical talent as we evolve our workforce towards a more technical mix. And then, of course, our longer-term ambitions and vision for Reality Labs and for the metaverse. You know, AI also seems, Susan, to AI recommendations on the timeline to have a real impact on engagement, particularly on the core Facebook platform. How much is that a driver behind the forecast for the current period of $34.5 billion in sales? It's a great question. First, I want to say we have been investing in AI for a really long time. We often use the phrase core AI to talk about the work that's been powering our ranking and recommendations engines, which are really the foundation of both our organic recommendations for the content that you see along with the ads work. And in particular, one of the big drivers of growth that's been both strong on our platforms and increasingly incremental is around recommending content from accounts that you don't already follow. We often call this unconnected content. And that's been really good for core engagement trends. And then of course, the AI investments, as we put GPU capacity towards our ads, ranking and recommendation systems have really paid off. So I think that's really translating both into the results that you've seen. It's part of what factors into our guidance, along with, of course, a big range of possible macro economic outcomes. At the same time, we're really excited about a newer opportunity ahead of us in the Gen AI space, and that's really around building compelling new consumer experiences. Mark talked about some of the things we're working on on the call yesterday, making it easier for people to create better, more individualized content, and then, of course, also making it easier for businesses to communicate with the, cons the consumers that they want to reach. That is newer for us. That's not factored into our revenue guidance or a revenue outlook, you know, in, in any meaningful way. But it's something that we're really excited about, the opportunity to build new and compelling experiences, and we think it'll be an important part of our future. Susan, why did Meta change its mind about charging cloud providers for access to Llama 2? I'm not sure what you mean by, change, by changing our mind. We've made Llama 2 free and widely accessible. There are a small handful of really large cloud providers that we're working on 
um, specific arrangements with, but broadly speaking, we expect this to be free and we want it to be accessible to a really um, to, to a really wide range of possible use cases. Kyle providers, will they be charged anything? Uh, this is a place where, again, with very specific cloud providers who have very large user bases, again, we're working on specific arrangements with them, but it's not something that we broadly anticipate charging for. And of course, we're all waiting to see when you turn on the money funnel from threads. I'm interested as to how much inbound you're getting from clients. How many want the capacity to start advertising alongside threads at the moment? You know, we're really very pleased with Threads. It's a new standalone app that you know we, we released earlier this month, and we're where it is in both uh, user growth terms as well as engagement and retention trends is certainly ahead of where we would have expected for a brand new standalone app. But it's incredibly early in its life cycle. This is not something that we expect that we're going to monetize in the near term. We know when we launch new consumer experiences that there is a playbook around all of the product foundation work that needs to be done around core features that users will ask for, being responsive to things that futures are, users are looking for in the product, scaling it over time to a much larger user base, focusing on driving increased engagement and retention. Those are all things that we're going to need, need to do you know, in advance of thinking about monetization. But it's a playbook that we've executed multiple times, and we're excited for the opportunity to do that again here. Susan, I think I'm right in saying you were Facebook employee number 400 and something, 408. How has the launch of threads compared internally to bringing in Instagram, WhatsApp, the launch of the hardware business and Quest? Um, yeah, so I joined... Uh, than Facebook back in 2008 when there are around 400 people here. And so I've seen us launch a lot of things over the course of that period. Now, some of those examples that you mentioned, like Instagram, obviously, were already popular apps when we acquired them. But I think that over the course of that time, we've learned a lot of things about how to bring products to market, thinking about the trade-offs between standalone apps or features within existing apps. We've learned a lot in our growth playbook and how to drive engagement and retention. And I think we're going to bring a lot of those lessons to the way that we execute against our vision for threats. Caroline asked you about the inbound interest. Your existing advertisers saying, hey, Susan, when can I put something on the threads platform? I know you're being conservative and careful about the development and that Mark emphasized a lot of product work needs to be done as well. But how do you see the roadmaps for threads going? You know, how do you change the product so it is monetizable? Well, we're excited, obviously, that there is interest, uh, both in Threads, the consumer product, and, of course, the eventual prospect of advertising on it. But it's really just too early, I think, to be very specific about what the ads business on Thread will look like in detail. We're really focused on executing on the consumer experience first, making it a great and productive and friendly place for people to have public conversations, growing it to scale. Uh, investing in the features that people want, and we'll get to monetization at the right time. Of course, us in the media 
had a field day thinking about the competitive force that Threads is vis-a-vis -vis X. And then we think about the competition more broadly, you versus TikTok, when I'm thinking of the success of Reels of late, when we're actually more broadly thinking about how Meta makes it self, not just a money spinner, but a culture spinner here, where people start trends, not just perhaps copy them from TikTok and bring them on to Reels. Do you feel you've got that now at Meta? I think that we've been over the course of the time that I've been here, you know, constantly focused on innovation. Um, and I think that we've brought that to bear with a lot of the experiences in our family of apps. And at the same time, when there are clear secular trends in the industry in terms of formats or experiences that consumers are looking for, we look to integrate those too. And I think we've done a really good job at executing on both of those fronts. And then of course, looking forward, I think we're really excited about the innovation opportunities ahead of us with Gen AI. We think we're industry leading here. Um, and then, of course, over the very long term with our vision for Reality Labs and the metaverse. We are, of course, with the Meta Chief Financial Officer, Susan Lee. We're welcoming her across TV and radio with our audiences. And Susan, everyone started talking about everything apps. Now, I know you're about the money, not always developing the product. But you think about everything app as Meta? Is there a race on to ensure that we can build that here in the US and you'll be part of it? It's a great question. I know that there are other regions around the world, in particular Asia, where there are apps that have gone down this model. That's not a model that we have right now. We haven't seen that use case to the same extent um, in North America. But, you know, I would say that we're really invested in the opportunities that we have ahead of us across our family of apps right now, including Threads, which is the newest standalone app in our portfolio. And then there's just a lot that we can do to make the experiences across our family of apps richer and more engaging with the investments that we've made already in AI and especially recommending content that you don't already follow. And we know that that's brought richer content experiences to people, is growing engagement across the apps. And we'll release um, you know, we'll be releasing features over the course of the next years, but we're really excited about what we think that this is going to bring to bear for the consumer experience and, of course, also eventually for businesses to connect with consumers across the family of apps, too. Susan, investors were sanguine about the idea that expenses could creep up. I wonder if you just tell us what your priorities are, where you'll invest in talent, in the metaverse, whether your investments will be on the content side or the hardware side. Great question. We talked about this a little bit on the call yesterday when we gave some color into the 2024 outlook. The three themes that I really want to talk about there are first, we expect that our infrastructure costs are going to grow because of the investments we've made in AI, building GPU capacity, you know, that will go towards both the core AI work and the ranking and recommendation engines that I talked about, along with the new gen AI investments. So that's a place where we're investing certainly in a lot of hardware, along with the infrastructure, such as data centers and network equipment that you need to support that. The second area that we talked about is we are evolving our workforce toward a more technical mix, you know, and we want to hire top tier technical talent where we can towards some of our most compelling opportunities, including AI and machine learning engineers to work on the AI efforts we talked about. And so that's a place where 
We are going to be investing, but we're going to be doing it in a very thoughtful way, making sure that we're really focusing on the core priorities and making trade-offs where appropriate. Susan, the third thing that we talked about is on the Reality Lab side. That's certainly a very long time horizon and ambitious vision, and we're going to be investing and deploying capital toward it. The capital coming from that you already have, are you looking at the bond market? Are you looking at raising more funds? You know, we certainly generate enough uh, enough free cash flow right now for us to invest across the organic opportunities ahead of us that we see that are compelling. We have been um, raising debt we did earlier this year just as we're evolving our capital structure going forward. And that's something that we'll continue to look at and I think do on a measured pace going forward. But in terms of thinking about the capital available to us now, you know, we generate a lot of capital that we're always looking to allocate across the organic opportunities that we have. And we've talked about some of those. And then, of course, shareholder returns. Susan, really quickly before we lose you, how do you and Mark split up responsibilities at the company? What's it like working with Mark? You know, I've had the privilege of working with and learning from Mark for 15 years here. Obviously, as CEO, you know, and as a product visionary, he really shepherds the product roadmap um, and has defined the long-term vision for a lot of the things that we're investing in with incredibly ambitious goals. And I think that's a tremendous and powerful motivator for us. And I try to make sure that we have the financial frameworks and targets that are going to enable us to invest against those things. Innovation isn't free. And that's something that we're very mindful of. And we recognize that, especially against some of our longest time horizon ambitions, we have to earn the right to put capital towards those things in the way that we do. What I will say, having worked with Mark for such a long time, is he's tremendous at adapting to the time that we're in. And so whether that was leading a 400-person startup when I joined, whether that was overseeing our transition to the public markets during the shift to mobile, or whether that was this past year helping us really retool our cost structure and the way we operate and leading on the year of efficiency, I think Mark is tremendously good at making hard decisions, at yes. acting on them with conviction and looking forward. Meta Chief Financial Officer Susan Lee, thank you so much for your time. This is Bloomberg Technology. All right, time for VC Spotlight. Energize Capital, formerly Energize Ventures, raised $300 million for a new growth equity fund, bringing its total assets under management to $1.2 billion. Comes at a time when the startup industry is reeling, venture capital funding for climate tech has dipped. Energize Capital managing partner John Tuff joins us now. John, we always ask this how quickly did you raise that $300 million? <laughs> Firstly, thanks for having me, you guys. Really excited to be on here today. Um, I would say that the the funding environment in the last 12 months um, has been different than you know the previous cycle. Uh, fortunately, the limited partner interests in climate and sustainability um, has sustained. I would say it's been both you know domestic but also international limited partners have really buoyed the capital base. Um, so it took it took just about as long as we expected. Interesting, you say international. Many feel that perhaps. Well, climate focus has got a little bit too politicized here in the US, but over in Europe, we're still yep. very focused. Is that where you're seeing, indeed, some of the startups that you want to be looking to put money to work in being born as well? 
Yeah, you know, the, the climate opportunity is global, which is really exciting. For us at Energize Capital, we invest at the intersection of software and climate. Um, both of those are international megatrends. And as we see it, um, certain countries, certain regions are ahead of others. Europe, for example, as we think about it, um, is a few years ahead of the U.S. in many of the sustainable trends. And that has resulted in about a third of our portfolio um, coming from Europe uh, as opposed to North America. Is there anything you're seeing specifically in climate-related software about valuations? Have they come down or gone up? Yeah, yeah. The, um, so I say the, the climate theme overall has remained elevated, and we've seen a number of new capital partners uh, attempt to enter the space. Uh, climate software, we've seen some new entrants, but it's primarily from the fringe of the generalists. And at Energize, we believe that this is a theme you have to have domain expertise within. You know, a lot of our team are, are people who come from the solar, wind, battery, landscape. And so as we've thought about valuations, we know the industries, we know the potential. So we're investing for that great return. Um, and, and while some firms have come in with extremely lofty valuations, um, those that have been around a cycle or two, like us, um, we've, we've maintained a steady cadence. You know, Caroline, John comes on the show. He's raised 300 million for a new fund. He wants to talk about climate software, but really, there's one thematic space we want to ask him about. <laughs> it is, okay. and we keep on talking about it, John. Artificial intelligence. How much is that driving the companies that are already in your portfolio, or driving the companies you want to invest in, or becoming a real key theme of what you have to be inside at the moment? You know, you guys, it is the topic of the year. Um, every company in our portfolio, we are asking them how they're adopting these tools to make their solutions better. Um, what's, what's probably exciting to most is that um, about half of our portfolio was already using artificial intelligence tools prior to this year. They were using them, and, and the funny part is, the customer didn't even know. When you're selling to industrial operations, agriculture, energy transition, they just want the product to work. And so did they care that a solar software tool, a drone automation tool was using AI? Probably not, but they wanted it to work. Um, luckily for us, a lot of our talent comes from incredible institutions that, are, that were teaching this years ago. And so it is here today. It is in far more hands than most expect, and it is creating tremendous value. And we're excited to fund companies, both domestically and internationally, that use those tools to drive you know, the climate innovation theme. Yeah, just dwell on a moment the startup scene right now because the venture scene has been under stress we know that and interestingly that you're raising this fund right now what mm -hmm. about the amount of companies being born there was this talk that you know talent getting let go they're going to be out there building businesses is that happening there's there's a generation of new employees who want to work on something that matters and when you're waking up and the temperature is 20 degrees above normal like it is today across, across America, um, it's right in your face. And so the climate opportunity is attracting talent in our portfolio. While there's, there's layoffs happening across tech, we have hundreds of roles open in our portfolio, and I expect that only to grow. John, a lot of climate tech investors I speak to assess a potential portfolio company by its ability yeah. to tap into public sector funds. Is that mm -hmm. a criteria for you? The IRA, specifically here in the US and in Europe, has their alternative. Um, listen, we love it. We love that it's here. But our investment criterion does not rely on that capital to make a successful business. 
At Energize, we believe that a lot of the tools that we need to fight the climate crisis are here today. You know, the cost of wind, of solar, of batteries, the deployment of EV charging. It's, it's at scales that even five years ago, people couldn't imagine. And, and so we look at software companies that can help those scales, those companies scale at price points that are already effective. Um, it's nice to have for some of the new emerging technologies like nuclear and hydrogen, but we really focus on software that can help drive impact and returns today. Really quick, John, why the rename, changing a single word in the name? Yeah, it's, 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 it's a small change, but it's got a big impact. For us, we really felt, um, I, I've been in this cycle, in this industry for, for over 15 years. Um, the last time there was a dip in funding, the whole market left. We wanted to send a signal to our, our key stakeholders, stakeholders, which are our limited partners, our entrepreneurs, and our team. We're going to be here. We're going to be here from venture to growth and beyond. And we think the space is big enough to support you know, tens to hundreds of billion dollar companies. Energize Capital Managing Partner, John Tuff, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Wow, that does it from what was a reunited team on yeah, Bloomberg Technology. A bit too short. <laughs> Just too short. It's been a fantastic time with BTEC, Carol. We will be back together in the coming weeks. Fear not. But don't forget, you can recap everything from today's show on the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, on the Bloomberg platforms, but also Apple, Spotify, and iHeart. Really just insightful conversation with the Meta CFO, Susan Lee. The CFO, kind of sometimes the unsung hero, more involved in the strategy than you realize. So please go and check out that interview in the podcast. From here in San Francisco and out in New York with Caroline Hyde, this is Bloomberg Technology. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.